Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of short episodes with long perspectives on building the common good. Thanks for joining me on The Long Way. This is Episode 4, Do the Right Thing. I'll tell you about our featured guest in a sec, but let me just share a word or two about what Cardis is and why we're even doing this podcast. Cardis is a think tank dedicated to developing public policies, habits, and arguments aimed at achieving three things. Helping us all live together well, honoring our differences, and protecting the vulnerable. Now, all of that is just a more detailed way of saying building the common good, and that's where The Long Way comes in. We're all about that, which is why we've dedicated our first season of episodes to the theme of rebuilding structures, institutions, and social bonds in the wake of pandemic lockdowns. One area where we need to do some thinking along those lines is ethics, our choices and trade-offs, the values that guide those choices, and the implications of the choices we make. That's what we'll talk about with Dr. Margaret Somerville, Professor of Bioethics at the School of Medicine of the University of Notre Dame, Australia. We reached her via Zoom at her home in Sydney. Professor Somerville, it's great to be able to speak with you. Nice to be able to speak with you, Danielle, across the seas. That's right. That's right. Um, (laughs) I use sea with a a hesitation these days because it's usually meaning COVID. (laughs) That's true. Um, You know, you, you wrote recently in the Catholic Weekly in Australia that as far as ethics and COVID-19 go, we start the conversation, at least the ethical conversation, all on the same page, you know, with a phrase like, we're all in this together. What's the significance of that? Well, very often as an ethicist, you're usually dealing with a situation where there's a conflict between two people or two groups, and you've got to choose for... Uh, one or the other as to often on the basis of what principles should govern. I mean, you can take the euthanasia debate, you could take the abortion debate, you can, ta- you can even take the vaccination debate, you know, there's those who want it, those who say, no, we're not going to have anything to do with this. But in the uh, COVID situation, we're all at risk. And the fact that we're all at risk makes this all of us in this together. And unless we we understand that, I think we're going to make the wrong decisions. And the importance of that is that we can have what is sometimes a rare experience in ethics of all belonging to the same moral community. We all agree that we want to prevent all the harm that possibly can and we want to do as much good as we can to all of us who are threatened by this horrible little virus and so we that feeling of having sharing the moral community can help us to find a shared ethics which is not a frequent situation usually you know, I may have a bit of a bias, not bias, but a, a overemphasis view that we have a lot of conflict in ethics because people don't come to ethicists 
until they've got conflict. And that's what they want ethicists to help them sort out. Uh, but, you know, this is an, and I've talked a lot in the past, for example, in my Massey lectures in Canada about trying to find some shared ethics. We will never find a universal shared ethics. And trying to do that is often a hindrance of finding at least some shared ethics. And over the years, you know, I've seen examples of this. For example, uh, feminists and pro-life people um, will both agree that surrogate motherhood should not be... Uh, they would say not allowed, but certainly not encouraged and not commercialised. And that's an unusual sort of concurrence of values because usually if you went to abortion, they're on totally opposite sides. So you're not going to find them all agreeing on everything. And in fact, you know, I've also written about this in the past that I think that now we've got complicated packages of values and it's very hard to find a politician who represents and will stand up for all the values that you might have. And so what you have to do is prioritise your values and mm. say, this one's the most important to me. He stands or she stands for that, so I'll vote for her or for him. So, you know, it's, it's, ethics has just exploded. It's become enormously important in our world. Well, let, let's take it to the personal level here when it comes to this this pandemic you know we're experiencing lockdowns physical distancing various demands um it, it raises the question not just of my own safety or my family's safety but really of my responsibility to my neighbor my responsibility to society it's not about me it's about all of us um does it take a pandemic to bring that out of people because we've seen a lot of people you know being quite strict about it there are the exceptions as well, but, uh, you know, people have, have taken it seriously. Yeah, well, I think, I think the main initiating factor, you know, fear is a very powerful emotion. And this is a fear of death, you know, essentially. And particularly if you're in a more at-risk group, and one of the things that's emerging at the moment, both in the United States and in Europe, is that, you know, we thought at first that children were, you know, not very going to be very seriously affected by this. But now there's this new syndrome they think it's being caused by COVID and it's like, uh, you know, it's a, it, for some little kids, it's a fatal uh, encounter with the virus. And so I think everybody feels that in some way or another, even if not for themselves, then for their older relatives and parents and friends. I mean, we've had tragedies here in Australia uh, in a nursing home where I think the current number of deaths in this rather small nursing home is something like 16 or 18. And we know the same things happened in Europe and in the United States. And there's been horror stories. And I think that all of that makes us aware that uh, we, we actually are not an island. You know, as John Dunn said, no man is an island. And we are all codependent. And even if we've got a primary feeling of wanting to protect ourselves and those we love, um, 
we can only do that if we protect everybody else. So it's given us um, an incentive, I think, to bring back in consideration of the common good. Uh, you know, one of my recurring themes and that people, you know, the, the progressive values, so-called progressive values crowd get mad at me for, is that um, I oppose this intense individualism, this intense focus only on personal autonomy and it's my life and I can do what I like with it. And what I argued, again, it was in the Massey Lectures, actually, in my book called The Ethical Imagination. It was that we have lost the balance between understanding that we need also to protect the common good and maintain uh, care and protection for fragile and vulnerable people. Because if we don't, it's not, we, we won't be an island, the whole society will lose its ethical tone. And so the, I think what COVID has done has given us a very sharp reminder that we need to look again and see what's needed in that regard. I mean, that's always the question with public health. Public health is, by definition, everybody's health. Well, that, that's right. I mean, the word public is, is, is right there. And now that you mentioned public health, it does raise one of the interesting situations, uh, interesting if you look at it dispassionately, I suppose, um, that could arise, uh, and so far I don't think we've seen it arise in Canada uh, or the United States, and to my knowledge, not in Australia either, where medical resources or ventilators specifically have run out uh, or are in such short supply that, that health care systems or doctors or hospitals have had to make some very difficult ethical decisions, but that would certainly put them in, in a, a situation where they've got to make some kind of ethical trade-off. I'm not sure on what basis they'd be able to make those kinds of decisions. That is an extremely complex issue. And the idea that you can just have a, a sheet of paper that's got like over 65, no ventilator. I mean, that is simply not ethical. And I think uh, it has, you're right, it has happened, for example, in Italy, that was the case. And uh, uh, you've got a situation where you've got two patients needing a ventilator and you've only got one ventilator. How do you decide which patient gets it and who should decide and on what basis should they decide? And the answer to that is complex. Um, First of all, I do not believe it's ethical just to have an age cutoff. I like, uh, if, if you have to decide between those two patients, I like the New York, uh, New York had some guidelines and one of them was that you couldn't look at the age of the person just as the criterion uh, and you couldn't look at how many years of life you thought they might have and then say, well, the young person gets it, but the old one doesn't. What the New York guidelines said was you've got to look at how likely is each person to survive this virus if we give them the respirator or the ventilator. And so I think that is acceptable. I also think that you've... Um, 
you've got to have an in what we talk about in ethics of the ethics of the individual doctor patient relationship is that a doctor has a primary ethical obligation of personal care to every patient they treat and uh, that means they have to act primarily in the best interests of that particular patient now once you move away from that to for example how does the hospital distribute its resources well, the hospital can take into account effectiveness of the treatment, efficiency of the treatment, and justice as between the different people. Uh, and they might come to a different decision. And then you've got the difficulty of deciding whose decisions will predominate. And um, that's, that is extraordinarily difficult. And... Um, uh, I've written about this quite recently, actually, about having policy guidelines or a sort of a checklist, like tick, 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 tick. And uh, I think, I don't think that's wrong to have that. And I think it can be helpful because it brings issues you should consider to your attention. But you cannot assume that just because you followed a policy or a guideline that you've acted ethically. And indeed, you can't assume you've acted legally. Because if you've made a decision that no reasonably competent healthcare professional would make in that situation, then you could be legally liable for medical malpractice. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it's a very complex issue. And I think the other thing that raised, sorry, Daniel, I'm really going on here, but the other thing that raises, and this is really important, is you can't just blame the individual practitioner or even the hospital why didn't they have those resources? And what's the responsibility of bureaucrats and politicians and public health authorities? And so every, is, you know, sometimes uh, I describe this to my students as it's an issue that is not like a football, that you throw it and somebody else gets it and you haven't got it anymore. The responsibility here is like a cake. And you can cut that cake up into as many tiny slices and everybody's got a responsibility. Just want to add one more thing on that topic and that is some research in Italy that shows that doctors who had to make that decision, did this person get the respirator or the other one, they're actually suffering what's now being called moral trauma because they're feeling guilty that maybe they didn't make the right decision. And that's a real psychological and existential and moral injury. And we've got to be conscious of that too. I, so there's my diatribe. <laughs> that's fine. If I could just ask you one more thing as we're, as we're running out of time. Do you think that our perception, societal perception of the value of a human life has changed through this experience of the last several months. Do you know what? This morning here in Australia, I was watching morning television, which has got nothing but COVID news on it. That's the only thing it reports on. Um, and I saw these mass graves uh, in New York and actually in Brazil. And, you know, it's all over the world now. 
And I thought about actually about my thoughts on dying. And I thought, well, you know, it's a pretty frequent thing. I mean, it suddenly brought death to the forefront. Death is, is the topic of morning television. And uh, I think it can make us both appalled that so many people are losing their lives. I think it can also make us think, well, you know, it's inevitable and maybe we shouldn't fear it so much. But I think then we've got to be very careful not to devalue human life, sort of, so what if another human life is lost? It matters. It really matters. And if we lose respect for human life, what we will have, I think, is a catastrophe in terms of the uh, ethical tone of our society. Because in my view, the most fundamental principle that upholds ethics in general in the society, what upholds what we call the ethical tone of a society, is that we value beyond everything else human life. And I mean, that's why the people who are anti-euthanasia and anti-abortion and that, that's why they're anti, because they say this is a serious affront to the value of human life. And no society can hold together for long if it loses that value. And it's not just a religious value, it's an essential secular value as well. And so I think we have to be careful. And I think we can look at the struggle we're making to try to help people not get COVID, to keep people safe, to treat them when they get it. We can see all of that as sort of a, concrete manifestation that we do value human life. Well, thank you for your time. We'll have to leave it there. It's my pleasure, Daniel. As always, let's bring in the Longway producer, Rachel DeBrun, now to give some broader context to this discussion on ethics. R Rachel, um, I think Dr. Somerville made an important point early on in our conversation uh, that the pandemic experience has put most of us into what she called the same moral community, which is a pretty rare thing considering how often moral issues divide us rather than unite us. But I, I kind of wonder if that's changing as the entire you know, lockdown experience goes on. Yeah, I mean, I laughed out loud when she described it as not a frequent situation where we find ourselves with a shared ethic. Um, <laughs> but it's been so long, so much has changed that when I think back to where we were collectively and ethically two months ago, it's an, it's an entirely different landscape. And I mean, when, when Dr. Somerville was talking about fear, I think that is such a critical transition where, I mean, she's talking a lot about the fear of death. And certainly for a lot of people, that is still a prevalent mood for them. But when I look around and when I read the headlines, I'm sensing a shift in the predominant fear. The surface fear is looking more like one of, of a loss of a lifestyle or a loss of freedom. The social implications that come from this medical phenomenon, um, th that pivot, I think, is quite critical. I think you're right. And I think there is a change in the sense of fear, maybe the, the sort of intense fear that we felt at the beginning, maybe that has crested. Because I've started mm -hmm. to see um, a lot people just becoming more comfortable, A, with being out there, maybe without a mask, maybe without gloves, um, all those sorts of things. Or 
people just having their folks over in their in their backyard for you know sharing a meal or snacks or drinks or or, or something like that stuff that in some parts of the country is technically allowed by the rules but in other parts of the country well isn't and I, I think part of the reason for that is because the fear factor maybe isn't there as much. Yes, and we're such irreversibly social creatures. The thought of being cooped up for that long just isn't sustainable. So then it's this mixed bag of, of the desire to be with loved ones and and th- this question of what does it look like to care for the other? Are we endangering just ourselves when we gather? What uh, This simultaneous feeling of doing too much and too little at the same time. I think everyone's tired and it's, it's getting very confusing. Well, yeah, and, and there is the other aspect of it. The other side, as far as the ethical question goes, is how long can you really keep people apart? Yeah, not you know, long. <laughs> not, not long. And there is that that desire to be with other people. It's not just a desire. It's a, it's a need. And it's not a bad thing. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. We're, we're made to be in community. It just gets complicated when you have a virus. Oh, yeah. Well, look, the whole conversation <laughs> with with Professor Semmelville started by saying, yeah, it gets complicated. And you're right, Rachel, it does get complicated. And uh, one thing, however, that is simple is that this brings us to the end of another episode of The Long Way. Very so. Good. <laughs> thank you, Rachel, and thanks to everyone for listening. Don't miss our next episode with author Jamil Giovanni as we discuss the inequality that the COVID crisis highlights and what we can do about it. So for the entire team here at Cardus, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Thanks for listening. Thanks.